Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, football players in We're Paid Wages Shocker and clubs furloughing staff, we offer a quick guide to what to get upset about and why. We also look back to 92-93 when sumo suits and pom-poms were the big issues facing football and the only thing that needed cutting back was the back of Richard Keyes' hands. There's your questions and part three of our quiz, the Intertotally Cup. Today, it's Horndog against Tom Williams, who will come out swinging and who will come out singing. It's all in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Billy Idol, as ever, there with the socially responsible suggestions for the days ahead. As we're joined now in limbo with Jimbo by Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hi to you, Michael. Matt Davis Adams is along as well. Hello, Matt. Hello, James. And there's also Daniel Story. Hi, James. Hello. We've got James Horncastle and Tom Williams, as I mentioned, standing by to quiz uh, very, very shortly. Uh, but, uh, well, yeah, here we are again. It's Monday. And uh, many thanks to listeners who got in touch after Thursday's show. We had a bit of a discussion about players with ironic surnames. Portboy said, listening to yesterday's pod, I thought I'd offer up Frenchman Dominique Dropsy, who's a goalie. Familiar with him, Matt? I'm not, I'm afraid. No, but oh. I did enjoy the feature. I was going to yeah. offer uh, Bruce Dyer as my uh, my candidate, which... Uh, Any former, of the Where was he? Palace? Yeah, well, he, mm. he was. And, and I always remember reading in an old 4-4-2 an Arsenal fan saying they'd overheard at a match. Bruce Dyer could only be more appropriately named if he was called Bruce Absolutely Effing Awful. And that always made me smile. Right. Harsh, but fair. Uh, Gareth Stringer, Kyle Walker is pretty good for a speed merchant. Whereas Trippier is a terrible name for a defender. He adds that Crouch is probably tough to do. I think actually Crouch is probably a fair nickname. When you're that tall, there's going to be a a certain amount of bending down. Plenty of news dominated this week, not so much about when things are going to get going again, but more whether the sport is doing enough in the current crisis. And really two elements here. One, the idea that players should be accepting pay cuts uh, as advanced by Conservative MP Julian Knight, who has previously written a book on how to do tax avoidance. The other thread to this is the increasing use by Premier League clubs like Liverpool, Spurs and Newcastle of the government's emergency furlough measures to effectively put their staff on paid leave, but paid leave where the clubs only contribute 20% of the wages and the other 80% comes from the taxpayer. Uh, Jamie Carragher, Didi Hammond, Stan Collymore, among former Liverpool players, expressing their anger at their old club's decision to embark on this this week. Uh, guys, what's the guidelines here? Are politicians right to direct anger at players' wages? And, and why is the legal use of this furlough scheme an, an act of moral vandalism, as you called it, Daniel? Yeah, I think that's the uh, the bigger issue in terms of, you know, we introduce the show as things to get upset about. I think that's the thing that should cause uh, anger, 
that retention scheme, that furlough scheme was intended to be open to everyone, but it was probably also intended to be used by those companies who really needed it uh, to avoid a, a financial apocalypse over the next three to six months. And I don't think any of the clubs who have who have chosen to do it in the Premier League are at risk of that financial apocalypse. You know, Tottenham and, and Liverpool, two of the clubs who have have already announced fairly significant profits and obviously both got to the Champions League final, which increased their coffers, shall we say. So I think that is is morally repugnant. I really do. I don't think there's any excuse for that. Uh, And particularly Tottenham, who are not even, uh, as we stand at the moment, are not even adding the 20%. They are just allowing their staff to get the 80% eventually paid by the taxpayer. And I think that's worth remembering. This, This idea that the government are going to pay out of a magic pot is a nonsense. Eventually it will be passed on to the taxpayer in increased taxes. So, yeah, I, I don't agree at all. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually really glad to see, not just from the ex-players, but from supporters, I kind of worried whether tribalism would play a part here and that club supporters would say, well, you know, it's it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, and make excuses. But they seem to not have done that, which is good. I do think that the clubs who have gone against what we would call the, the right moral path probably will be the four guys here. And I suspect, given the adverse reaction, other clubs will probably do the right thing. And it actually wouldn't surprise me if, if Tottenham and Liverpool went back on what they've done and and agreed to to pay those staff. The weird thing is that it was estimated that it cost Manchester United a million pounds to pay all of their casual staff for the games that they'd missed. So a club like Liverpool would pay a PR firm more than a million pounds to smooth over something like this if they they made such a terrible mistake. So it seems such an easy fix uh, that I suspect they will at some point go back on it, maybe. So you can see maybe Spurs and Liverpool going back on this. Newcastle, not so much? Well, no, I mean, Mike Astley is a a law unto himself, so I, I wouldn't like to predict his behaviour. But no, I just think it's a, an extraordinarily poor PR move. And it would be interesting to, to know what someone like Jurgen Klopp, who, who is very open with his socialism, what he thinks of it, because it just seems such a dim move. Tottenham not only furloughing a non-playing staff, but also taking back their mobile phones and computers. And the weird thing about Tottenham is that they've done it to the scouting staff, which seems extraordinary at a time when actually I'd have thought that's the one thing you probably can carry on with, with the with the kind of rise in video analysis. It's it's possible for them to keep on doing their job and plan for a transfer window whenever it comes. Mm. As for the wages thing, it does seem like players are just a very easy target, much easier, say, than faceless billionaires who actually own clubs. And Matt, as you were pointing out, it's kind of taking away attention from a lot of the good things that players have been doing. Yeah, it's a really difficult issue, isn't it? I think it should just be left up to individuals to decide if they want what they want to do with their own money, essentially. And I think you'd find, as we've seen, you know, with the with the campaigns led by Marcus Rashford and what Jordan Henderson's been doing, that the majority of footballers and Premier League players would be happy to help out in any way that they can, so long as they don't feel like they're being strong armed into it. And what Rashford's done, getting meals to kids in Manchester who'd usually get free school meals is incredible. I was reading on The Athletic earlier about the Murphy brothers, Jacob and Josh, who've been volunteering delivering prescriptions to elderly people uh, around Norfolk. And, And this is the kind of thing you want to be hearing about, but inevitably it's much easier for politicians to kind of talk about what footballers aren't doing because they're constantly used as, held up as these, um, sort of ungrateful millionaires who don't deserve the money that they get which is you know an opinion rather than a fact and uh, it's an easy stick to beat them with that they're young men with a lot of money and they should be giving it away seems odd to me among other um, actions taken uh, the premier league donating uh, 20 million to 
the NHS. They've also advanced over 100 million, isn't it, I think, to the Football League. UEFA, meanwhile, having an online conference and insisting that the season will be finished across Europe before a new one has begun. And anyone who doesn't follow uh, that guideline uh, stands to lose European places. All right, then, weighty matters tick. Uh, Very shortly, we'll be looking at some of your questions and we'll also be travelling back to the dawn literally, of the Premier League itself. Before that, though, and next, it's Game 3 of the Inter-Totally Cup. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Settle down, listener. It is Game 3 of our big knockout quest to find out which totally pundit is best. Already we've seen... Alvaro Romeo sailing through against highly fancied Duncan Alexander and Pat Nevin seeing off Lindsay Hooper with a perfect score in the specialist round. Who will join those two in the quarterfinals? Well, let's meet today's contestants. Up first, he describes himself as the man of a thousand tongues and says, yes, he is ready to lick this competition. What he doesn't know about football isn't worth speaking about in any language. Tom Williams. Tom Williams, saucy intro. How are you feeling? Good, thanks, James. Yeah, confident. Uh, looking forward to it. Excited. Excellent. Confident, but I think also cautious because you're up against the big gun of the totally world. Let's meet him. His opponent, as her suit as his rival is bald, you do well to stick a tenor on this baritone all the way from the eternal city of Hull, James Little Bighorn Horn Castle. James, you're a Roma fan. I am, yes. Thought I'd start with some misdirection there, James. Yeah, Padsin Thamala, anthem of a club famous for bottling things and blowing their big chances. Hmm, mm. I wonder. <laughs> Let's hear about your specialist subjects then. Tom, what are you going with? I'm going with Wales's campaign at Euro 2016. I mean, quite an obvious choice for me in that uh, I was there and watched almost all of Wales's matches uh, and also like a, a nicely bite-sized topic, I felt. Um, right, so no excuses for Tom Williams then. What about you, James Horncastle? Well, as my uh, intro music uh, kind of hinted, I will be doing Inter's 2010 treble winning campaign um, which is a decade ago and the last time an Italian club won the Champions League so dusting it off special for this quiz Wow, it's all making sense now Brilliant, we'll have a general knowledge round later on but let's start now with the specialist questions and first up Tom Williams on Wales at Euro 2016 Tom, question one Which player is missing from this list of Welsh goal scorers at Euro 2016 not including own goals? Bale, Robson Carnu, Ramsey, Vokes and Williams. Which name is missing? Neil Taylor. Correct. What did Chris Coleman say seconds before Chris Gunter crossed the ball for Sam Vokes to score against Belgium? Don't you cross that f-ing ball, Christopher. Correct. Name the director who made the film Don't Take Me Home about Wales at the tournament. Oh, I meant to, I meant to look this up and I didn't. Um, something Owen? And he's married to what's her face from um, This Is England, Vicky McClure. Oh. This is podcast gold, Tom, but I'm going to have to press you. <laughs> I can't think of what his name is. Can you give me a guess? 
Nick Owen. Wow, that's going to go to VR. It's Johnny Owen. I, I think we have to rule that one incorrect. Question four. What was unusual about Hal Robson Carnu's status when he scored that goal against Belgium? He'd been released by Reading the day before. Absolutely. He didn't technically have a club side. Uh, question five then. Aaron Ramsey was suspended from the semi-final against Portugal. Which other player also missed that game because he was banned? Ben Davis. Correct. So at the end of your specialist round, Tom, you have scored four out of five. Kicking myself about that Johnny Owen one. I can imagine. All right, well, let's hear how James Horncastle fares with Inter's treble winning season. James, you ready? I am, James. Good. All right, question one. What did Jose Mourinho do on the touchline during a game against Sampdoria that season to help earn himself a three-game touchline ban? He made a handcuff gesture. Correct. OK, question two. Inter faced Chelsea, Barcelona and Bayern in the knockout rounds of the Champions League and one other team too. Which team was it? That was Seska Moscow. Correct. Question three. Which player did Inter loan to Manchester City in the January transfer window? Patrick Vieira. Correct. Question four. What did Massimo Moratti have in common with Mikel van Praag, chairman of Ajax in the 1990s, after this season? He had emulated his father in winning the Champions League. That is correct. And question five, then, for a perfect score in round one, who was the only Italian to appear in the Champions League final for Inter? Would that be Marco Materazzi? Of course it would. Subject of a very special Galazzo special available now. Listen, he came on as a 92nd-minute substitute. So, at the end of your specialist round, James Horncastle, you have completed a perfect five out of five, but it's ever so tight. Tom, you're only one wrong forename behind James Horncastle at this point as we await the general knowledge round. Can you make up that deficit? I mean, that's how thin the margins are at this level, isn't it, James? Um, I, think, I think I'll probably need a five out of five in the general knowledge round. I can already hear him celebrating in the halftime dressing room. Let's see what happens when you two return for the general knowledge round at the end of today's show. Wow, everybody, that is so tight. Uh, Tom looking good, but Horncastle coming back at him with a fat manita. Five out of five. What do you reckon, guys? It was a sleeper tie, I think, wasn't it, when the draw came out? And uh, it certainly started... Brilliantly. One that will be remembered, I think, when we look back on this round in particular. I um, might say that the specialist subjects are eh, slightly controversial. In, in what way, Matt? Well, I mean, you know, Wales at Euro 2016, it doesn't exactly take a lot of boning up for, does it? I think and maybe I'm just speaking as somebody who's picked a rather broad specialist subject and what, what's I'm your, regretting it. What's your specialist subject, Matt? Premier League squad numbers. So, you know. Take your pick of any squad number of any player from the last... Right, because you've drawn against Michael Cox. Michael, what have you gone with with your special subject? Uh, I've gone for World Cup 2010, which is 64 games, so I think that's acceptable. Daniel, Pod Addict writes in and says, does anyone else think Daniel's story is now the favourite for the totally World Cup, or will he bottle it? Uh, (laughs) I mean, if you lose in the first round, I'm not sure that's a bottling for starters. That sets me up for a fall. Uh, I don't consider myself a favourite because I've chosen a stupidly broad topic, which is nicknames in English football. Well, I think Brilliant. English league. But yeah, that's uh, Michael gave me a, a preliminary test question before we started and I got that haplessly wrong. So that's a good start. What was the question, Daniel? 
Uh, it was which team were formerly known as the Biscuit Men, and Michael will give you the answer. Michael? Uh, it's Reading before they were the Royals. I just really like Biscuit Men as a nickname. It's kind of proper old school football nickname, local industry. I think McVitie's used to be based near the ground. And Royals is just, I don't know, it feels a bit um, It feels a bit like a nickname for a new franchise cricket team that doesn't really work. Royals, to me, sounds like a, a fancy box of biscuits, maybe. As for the Biscuit Men, you can imagine them being uh, wafer-affiliated, eh? Uh, very good. <laughs> Uh, I'm just I'm just hoping beyond hope that uh, when I do the quiz, the first question is that and that Michael's absolutely nailed it. <laughs> right, OK. We shall see. Uh, Daniel, you're coming up uh, on Thursday, actually. You, you've drawn against uh, Raphael Honigstein, which is another of the, you know, the, the real prestige mm. uh, match. A tough place to go, Yeah, Rafa. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> OK, we have a question here about uh, transfers that didn't happen for weird reasons. Uh, with the example given of Zinedine Zidane, who didn't go famously to Blackburn Rovers because Blackburn already had Tim Sherwood, which back in the day had a certain logic to it. Of course, Blackburn Rovers also didn't sign Robert Lewandowski. What was the motive for that? Yeah, that was the Icelandic volcano in 2010. Uh, its name I cannot say, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, that also famously hampered Barcelona's preparations for their Champions League semi-final uh, against uh, Inter. But yeah, that was uh, I think it called off all flights that week, didn't it? So there was some issue with that. It was like a European shutdown. Can you imagine? Uh, any other transfers that didn't happen for weird reasons? Matt, Daniel, Michael? Um, yeah, more my favourite, obviously, is a, is a Forest one. And I say favourite, I was actually quite crestfallen when it didn't happen because George Boyd, one of my favourite players who, who had previously had a brief spell at Forest on loan, but back in 2013 when, when Forest were owned by the clownish Fawaz Al-Hasawi, uh, a deal was put in place for uh, Boyd to join from Peterborough. All the, all the paperwork was done, everything was agreed, right until Forest decided that there had been an inconclusive eye test uh, which meant that it was abandoned. Uh, the Peterborough chairman, Darren McAntony, tweeted at the time, he scored from the halfway line the other month, so I don't think his eyesight's that bad. He joined Hull instead, uh, scored against Forrest soon after, and of course put his hands over his eyes in a, a glass of celebration, which was pretty hilarious. Quite a spectacle, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I remember Benjani not getting a transfer because he fell asleep at the airport and missed his flight. But <laughs> I, I'm told that actually went through in the end. Uh, there was one, though, about Robbie Savage, though, involving Roy Keane, was there not? Yes, when Roy Keane was manager of Sunderland and uh, he wanted to sign Robbie Savage. I'm not sure if it was on loan or a permanent deal to, to help try and keep them up in the Premier League. And he rang Savage. It went straight through to his mobile. And it was in the, um, the period of those Budweiser adverts. Uh, and Robbie Savage's voicemail started with him going, what's up? And uh, as you can imagine, Roy Keane put the phone down and, and didn't call again. <laughs> There's a similar one of those with, uh, which might be apocryphal, with Brian Clough and uh, Forrest and Gary McAllister. Uh, and apparently McAllister came, the deal had been done and he came to sign his contract and arrived at the city ground in a pair of cowboy boots that uh, Brian Clough said was so disgraceful that on principle he couldn't sign him. Yeah, he said, who do you think you are, John Wayne? And the deal fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> right, all right. Well, uh, Michael, anything to add to that? No, I can't top those ones, but I'm just, uh, I think Matt's giving Robbie Savage far too much credit by suggesting that was the Budweiser advert era. I think Savage was about 10 years late on that one. <laughs> well, from 10 years after to about three decades before, as for today's slice of retro action, 
We head all the way back to 1992, back from the grave and very much alive and kicking. It's the opening season of the Premier League. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Getting a road named after you in your hometown, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbgambleaware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy News Media. Really heard sounds of Simple Minds with Alive and Kicking. Soundtrack to what was, listener, a paradigm shift in the nation's favourite sport. Football, the proud but previously rather plain passion of the people with its Brian Moore and its mud, its C-Fax, had just tarted itself up, picked out a fancy new moniker and sold itself to the hairy fingers of brash young satellite channel Sky Sports. Wow. Summer of 1992, for supporters, supporters who might have been a little bit older than you guys were at the time, how, how big a change was this? How much of a sea change, Michael? Yeah, well, I think it was a change primarily in terms of how people viewed football and television. It was kind of sold as a, a television event as much as it was a going to the games event. It's very obvious when you watch back the pictures that Sky were really giving it some almost American-style razzmatazz with fireworks and cheerleaders. They really bigged up the the concept of Monday Night Football in particular, which, you know, almost 30 years on is, albeit in a different form, still a kind of very prominent part of the week. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, big, um, a big change. But it's worth pointing out, I think, that I think I'm right in saying that at this stage, only one or two games a weekend were actually live on television. So it was really, you know, when the Sky Sports TV cameras went to... Anfield or Highbury or wherever it was it kind of seen as like a big event and mm. it's funny when you read the quotes from managers after games whenever the TV cameras are there they're always like oh we really put on a show for the Sky Sports TV cameras so it was still a kind of relatively novel thing to have your match on television right unless they were Italian games because they were on all the time because this is all <laughs> new to me because this is this is the moment at which I kind of did one for uh, the, the faraway land of, of Syria, missing out on, as you mentioned, cheerleaders, collar strings. I asked actually listeners what, what memories they had of the opening season. Uh, some of the responses, Simon Martin, Shearer, banging them in for fun. Ed Quoth Raven says, Sky's use of Alive and Kicking, do half an hour, please, on this advert. Jackpot Kestrel agrees. I mean, John Walk, says Jackpot Kestrel, followed by an Oldham player after Tony Daly, I think, has been smashing weights. How much stuff was the team that made this on? Do you remember this advert, guys? Yes, it was fantastic. Yeah. And it, we were all kind of working out in their kits as well, wasn't it? Which looked like a good way to get sweaty and smelly. I think Gary Charles was the, the forest representative. It was, I think it was Andy Ritchie for Oldham. Yeah, lovely times. Uh, it was kind of, it was almost... As well, a reaction to, to football rebranding itself in the wake of the, obviously, Hillsborough, but the hooliganism that had kind of taken over the English game in, in certainly the late 80s. And this was all part of that, wasn't it? You mentioned like, the shirts and things, James. It's kind of selling replica kits was a thing that came along around this time on sort of big scale. I remember getting the Arsenal shirt 
the year before 1991. And my mum had to order it from a sports shop in North London and have it posted up to Nottingham because you couldn't buy it anywhere else in the country but London. But this was that kind of the time of the commercialisation of football through the Premier League, which we kind of think of as uh, as being a Sky thing exclusively. But I think it was a bit of a broader reaction to the problems that English football had had from the sort of mid to late 80s through to around this this kind of time. So that's why you ended up with with cheerleaders on the pitch instead of police horses. It should also be said that the football was was still pretty much, you know, Division One rolled in glitter. It was of the of the thirteen players who scored fifteen or more league goals, only Cantona was non-British. The names, you know, Mickey Quinn and players like that, there was still a very old school feel to it. It was just, as I say, rolled in glitter until until a time when the football and the you know the signing of foreign players and the money caught up with it. It was very much just a rebadging of the old Division One, for, certainly for this season, and probably 93-94 as well, I think. Yeah, just 13 foreign players in that inaugural Premier League season. But a whopping 22 teams, among them the uh, last First Division champions, Leeds, and the three sides that would contest the first Premier League title race. Man United, who were very much the Liverpool of the era, eager to end a 25-year wait for the title, Aston Villa and Norwich. What on earth were Norwich doing there? The Norwich story is mad, mainly because in, in hindsight they're viewed as a kind of statistical quirk in that they, they finished third with a goal difference of minus four. I looked through their results and they, they lost 7-1 to Blackburn, they lost 5-1, they lost 4-1, they lost 3-1 four times and they lost 3-0 twice. They got hammered when they did lose, but they had... Uh, Jeremy Goss, who was the hero that they then went obviously to play against Bayern Munich in the following season. Yeah, it was a a mad, mad story. They were seen as being in the title race and they probably just about were, but I don't think there was ever really a sense at the time that they were going to hold on. It was always a case of really which side would pit them. It's worth pointing out that it did really come from nowhere. They finished 18th this season before and missed out on uh, the relegation places by only three points. So it really was... Um, a huge shock and they had Chris Sutton converted centre-half uh, midway through the season went up front um, but it's the other names isn't it that, that roll off your tongue um, Daniel's already mentioned Jeremy Goss but Ian Crook John Polston Rule Fox Effort Koku mm, Gary yeah, Megson not so much not so much <laughs> Ian Culverhouse there's another one for you Canary Mark says they were the team of the 90s managed by Mike Walker using a groundbreaking back five with overlapping fullbacks they led the Premier League by six points at Christmas eventually ending up third it's true as you say 18th the previous season they'd sold off probably their biggest star over the summer and replaced the manager with the man from the youth team Mike Walker Michael do they do they deserve a little bit more, more praise now that we look back at, at what they were trying to do yeah, definitely. I think they were the best footballing side in the league when you look at the way that they passed the ball. You mentioned the fullbacks with, with Culverhouse and, and Butterworth getting forward. I think that was seen as quite exciting, quite progressive at the time. Um, I think there's a decent argument that in the first few years of the Premier League, it wasn't always the best footballing side of the top contenders who, who won the league. I think Norwich were the best passers this year. I think generally Manchester United was slightly more... Uh, ruthlessly efficient than the teams they're up against, particularly Newcastle, you know, the entertainers. And the one season they didn't win, it was the Blackburn team. And that was a year where United probably were playing better football than the eventual champions. But yeah, Norwich were an excellent side. And as Daniel alludes to, that they did lose a lot of games quite heavily and they did lose the big games quite heavily. They lost 3-0 to Manchester or 3-1 to Manchester United in the title run-in. They even lost both home and away to their local rivals Ipswich. And Ipswich were, I think, three points off relegation at the end of the campaign. So they're an attractive side, but maybe not one that relished the big occasions. 
All right, well, that was Norwich. Uh, eight points clear they were in December, uh, but they weren't to win it. That glory went to Man United. Now, we mentioned at the top that they'd been waiting a long time, a quarter of a century since their last league title. This campaign didn't start very well. They lost their opening two matches. But in November, something very significant happened. United lying in eighth place when their chairman, Martin Edwards, receives a phone call from Leeds United. A phone call that turns out to be possibly the most significant call since before or after Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. Daniel, why? Uh, they got Eric Cantona. Um, the, the, well, the, the slightly apocryphal, I think, uh, or the slight myth of this is that, that Leeds were uh, intending to sign Dennis Irwin, I think, and Manchester United laughed that out of the room. But Dion Dublin, their summer signing, had, had broken his leg and they needed something. Uh, they'd put a four million pound bid in for for David Hurst, and that was their first choice. But when when Ferguson got a sniff that that Cantona might be available, and he'd pretty spectacularly fallen out with with Howard Wilkinson at Leeds, uh, he got the deal done. It seems very easy now, but this was not a popular signing. Manchester United players thought that that Cantona was a lunatic. They thought he was a, a risk that they didn't need. Graham Souness at Liverpool had turned down Cantona in '91 because he thought he couldn't be trusted and. As I say, he'd burned his bridges at Leeds as well. The expectation was that he would leave the country, either back to France, although he'd caused some problems there, or, or to Syria and, and Inter, I think. But yes, they got Cantona and it completely turned around the season. Um, they lost, I think they lost two of the 26 matches after he signed and uh, they basically scored two goals a game after he signed and were scoring one goal a game before. So yeah, that was the title decider. Michael, is that your understanding of the phone call? Yeah, uh, Philippe O'Claire is uh, has written a very good biography of Cantona, and he he suggests that United had been tracking Cantona for a while. And I think there was one game Ferguson was at where he was sat alongside Gerard Houllier, who was the France manager at the time, and Cantona got himself sent off. And Julio said something like, "Oh God, we'll have to find him yet another club." And from that, Ferguson thought, "Well, okay, we'll have a we'll have a look at him." I mean, I think the strangest thing is the fact that United had actually had a four million bid turned down for David Hurst of. Sheffield Wednesday um, and then ended up getting Cantona for I think 1.2 million so it was you know as Daniel says it was a real steal it was completely unexpected um, and there was no there was no sign at that point that he was going to be a, a success let alone probably the man that transformed Manchester United into the side that has dominated the Premier League for the last 25 years. Why was his arrival so key why was he the catalyst for that transformation? I think there was two reasons one was tactical I mean he he was a number 10 that United didn't really have before that. He allowed Mark Hughes to play a little bit higher up and actually score some really good goals that season. Hughes was often criticised for not scoring enough, but I think with Cantona dropping deep and, and creating, Hughes came into his own. And I think just his attitude as well. I mean, again, Daniel will know maybe more about this than me, but that younger generation of Manchester United players really all cite uh, Cantona's work rate, his dedication in training, staying behind to work on free kicks and long shots and that kind of thing. And they say that at the time, you know, the existing experienced bunch of Manchester United players, if you would have done that in front of them, basically you would have had the piss taken out of you for being almost like a teacher's pet and trying hard at your game. And Cantona basically just professionalised things and made everyone realise that although he did have a, a great talent, really, who was a great player because he worked really hard at his game and was just always striving to improve. I'm just on David Hurst, the kind of Pete Best of this of this scenario. <laughs> He's almost worth a, a flip reverse of his own in this because he was apparently in, in the dressing room at Sheffield Wednesday's training ground when Trevor Francis, the then manager, brought in a fax 
from Alex Ferguson uh, with the bid from Manchester United for his services. Uh, Trevor Francis tore it up and said, we're not entertaining this, you're staying here. And David Hurst then went on to have massive problems with injury throughout the rest of his career. He's a really, really promising striker. Um, but, uh, I mean, later on in this season and, and throughout 93-94, he barely kicked a ball. So you think how different his career could have been, not just in terms of the fact he would have won the Premier League, but he might have played a heck of a lot more games in the top flight and, and maybe for England as well. So I wonder how many times a day he curses Trevor Francis. If we talk about the way that Cantona enabled Man United to play, would the greatest example of his impact be the day when they travelled to their title rivals, Norwich, at Carrow, the 5th of April 1993, 27 years ago to the day that we're recording this podcast, Michael? Yeah, that was, I mean, when I was doing uh, the book and, and looking at Manchester United's early years, that was the game I looked at. The most famous game, I guess, is the one the following weekend when they came from behind to beat Sheffield Wednesday with two Steve Bruce goals. And that was what gave rise to Fergie time. But in terms of the approach and the tactics United used, I mean, as we say, Norwich were a brilliant footballing side. They comfortable in possession. They like to take the game to the opposition. And United just soaked up pressure and scored three absolutely remarkable counter-attacking goals with the pace of Giggs, who was playing up front unusually for Manchester United that day. It is measured, the flag stays down, here's Giggs. Still Giggs, it's going to be a United goal and Ryan Giggs puts Manchester United into the lead. Ince does well, Giggs, Leclerc, lovely movement from United and Kinshaskis here, is one-on-one, he's got Cantona square. He goes alone and he scores! Andre Kanchalskis with a remarkable goal for Manchester United really has put them into the box seat now. Look at Ince here. They've gone through again. Men in support as well. And here is Cantona and that's three! You can't believe this! And you can look at them now and they're impressive even now, but I think in the context of football that season where... You know, the speed of the game is nothing like how we see it today. Um, for United to feel Giggs and Kinchelskis and Sharp in the same side, almost, you know, bombing forward uh, on the flanks with Cantona orchestrating things in the middle, it was just an incredible performance at a time where United had, you know, suffered a bit of dip in form, I think, in uh, around this time, around Easter. But yeah, that really was the performance that uh, certainly put Norwich out of the title race and was, uh, yeah, the foundation for United's successful running. As you say, watching those goals back, it's like watching proper modern football. It reminds me of one of the other famous Manchester United counter-attacking performances, which was the one against Arsenal in the Champions League when Rooney and Ronaldo were at their pomp and cutting through a, a pretty flimsy, if you know, if well-intentioned Arsenal team. And it, it also feels like a, a side that was prepared to sacrifice having the ball and was prepared to sacrifice, you know playing on the front foot to decimate an opponent, which I think was a very early example of Ferguson's kind of pretty enlightened tactical thought about how to break down other teams. Michael, in your book, The Mixer, you call this game the single most influential team performance in the history of the Premier League. Uh, Norwich had started that weekend in first place with United third. And as you were explaining, Norwich playing the possession game, Daniel, as you're saying, United very much the counter-attacking a force. Are you saying that the fact that United ended up the winners, that kind of laid the template, if you will, for successful Premier League tactics that everybody then subscribed to? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, over the next 10 years, the, the general approach of sides is to have a, a couple of defensive midfielders, as United did, and, and flying wingers and, and someone in the hole. And that's pretty much how every other 
Premier League title winner played for the next few years. And, you know, it sounds like a grand statement, but I say that because the thing we haven't mentioned yet was 1992 was also the introduction of the back pass rule, which completely changed the way teams played. And I think if Norwich, who were kind of the most progressive and most uh, comfortable in possession side in the league, if they had won the Premier League, I think a lot of other sides, not just mid-table sides, but a lot of the top sides would have said, oh, okay, you know, that's how we're going to have to play in the modern game um, and maybe would have followed Norwich's approach. But it takes quite a few more years before you see a side that is really a possession-based team winning the Premier League. I'd probably say Arsenal in, in 2003-04 was probably the first example because I think the Arsenal sides before that were a little bit like this Manchester United, probably more famous for their counter-attacking ability than their tendency to dominate possession. Well, the title went to them ending their long drought. Norwich, after spending the most days of any club on top of the table that season, ended up in third, as you mentioned, with a negative goal difference. But what else happened in that inaugural season? I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus begambleaware.org. Sometimes I feel I'm gonna break down and cry. Nowhere to go, nothing to do with my time. I get lonely. So lonely. Living on my own. So the topical sounds of uh, 1993 chart smasheroo living on my own by Freddie Mercury. Here's some of your other golden memories. Big Ron's Villa with Dean Saunders, of course, and their incredible 4-2 with Liverpool. Lots of listeners mentioned that. Saunders on his home debut, instrumental in downing his former club in a game that's mostly infamous for what, Matt? Ronnie Rosenthal and his inexplicable uh, thumping of the crossbar when the goal was gaping. Liverpool, oh, he's hit the bar! What a let off the Villa and what a miss by Rosenthal. Underlining perhaps the folly of selling Saunders uh, by Graham Souness. Villa, who were two points clear with eight games to go but didn't make it across the line in first place, partly, according to their manager Ron Atkinson, because Dalian Atkinson missed three months of the season. Dalian Atkinson, who goal-scorer challenge sites in their memories of 92-93 for his incredible goal against Wimbledon. Atkinson... Chance to see his skill and pace. Saunders outside him. Atkinson going through on his own. Saunders to his right, tries a chip. And that's a superb individual goal by Dalian Atkinson. Goal scorer challenge, wow. I was out of the country at the time. And watching that back this week, absolutely astonished. What a goal. The thing that's always impressed me about that is with those those kind of goals where for anybody who hasn't seen it gets it in his own half, dribbles past X number of opposition players. Usually, like with that famous George Ware goal that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the finish is is like the least impressive part of the of the whole thing because you've had the brilliant dribble, but it's a, a beautiful, deft little chip from outside the penalty area, and you get that wonderful shot of a goalkeeper looking over his head as the ball sails past him, which makes it even better. And then the bloke with the umbrella coming out the crowd to uh, shield Atkinson and Saunders from the rain. I kind of 
boiled the title race down to uh, three injuries in 92-93. The first is, is Dion Dublin's broken leg, which forces Ferguson to seek other options and, as we said, ends up with Cantona joining. The second is Dalian Atkinson being out for three months. Obviously, Ron Atkinson would say that they would have won the league without it because it alleviates him of or absolves him of any responsibility. But And the third is, is Alan Shearer doing his ACL in December 92. He'd scored 16 and 21. Uh, Blackburn were three points off top behind Norwich when he got injured. Uh, and had beaten, as, as I said earlier, they'd beaten uh, Norwich 7-1 at home with Shearer absolutely brilliant. So I think you know, Blackburn eventually finished four, 13 points off top, but you know Villa finished 10 points behind and Ron Atkins says that Dalian was the reason they didn't win the league. So I think there's an argument to say that if Shearer stays fit for that season, Blackburn get a heck of a lot closer than Villa do. OK. Other memories of 92-93, James Phillips and Danny Tolhurst citing Mickey Quinn, his extraordinary... Goal-scoring exploits for Coventry. Uh, Richard Moorcroft as a Leeds fan, starting off as champions and ending up without an away win all season. In fact, Leeds, one of the worst ever title defences, they, they came in 17th that season. Bit Dub 1878 says Richard Keyes' jackets, which, looking back, were extraordinary. I suspect even at the time, extraordinary. Adrian Bassett, the shaman, being booed off at Highbury and flicking Vs. This was part of Sky's initiative to have chart hopefuls performing their recent output at halftime of, of games, which is always fraught with danger. Jordan Ray also mentions a Highbury uh, memory, having fake fans in the North Bank stand. Tell me more about this. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a clangour because they were all white, all the fake fans that they painted so on the mural. Why were there fake fans there anyway? They were redeveloping the North Bank. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that actually stood out to me uh, looking back at the season. A lot, if not most, of the grounds in the Premier League are unrecognisable. You know, Ewood Park, Villa Park, other ones that don't have the suffix park particularly stood out. Stamford Bridge, yeah, of course, where you used to have the cars parked behind the goals. They just look completely different from, from the way they do now. And, and as part of the, the redevelopment of, of Highbury, they, they built a new North Bank and uh, deciding that instead of having cranes and scaffolds there, they'd, they'd put up a big mural of fans. And um, yeah, it was kind of weird. Well, they had to paint it three times, apparently. The first time, there were no uh, black faces or any kind of uh, people of different ethnic heritages in there. They repainted it, but then came in uh, under criticism because there were no uh, women in the crowd and there were a lot of children who appeared to be next to people who weren't their parents. So they finally did it again and and, and off they went. Uh, Arsenal, for their part, finished 10th that campaign, but they did win both domestic cups, beating Sheffield Wednesday in both finals how very curious who were the kings of london who were the top london side that season qpr remarkable a lot of people know that stat about leeds that they uh, came 17th having been first the previous season and i think that's partly attributed to the back pass change what people might not know is that arsenal had uh, an even more astonishing collapse in some ways because the previous season the old first division season or the final old first division season i should say um they scored the most goals in the league and then this season, they scored the fewest goals in the league. Um, that's the only time in Football League history that that has happened. And it was, again, attributed to the fact that Arsenal played a pretty simple game that depended a lot on David Seaman smacking the ball downfield for Alan Smith or Kevin Campbell and Ian Wright running onto it. And now that they were forced to embrace more of a patient build-up kind of game, they really struggled. And yeah, I think they scored more goals the previous season at home than they scored in this season home and away, which was a, a remarkable come down. So the issue there was that David Seaman just simply didn't receive the ball enough because of the back pass rule to launch it back downfield. 
a little bit before if the defenders were under pressure they just used to um pass the ball back to Simon he could pick it up and then he could launch it downfield properly um but until this point goalkeepers had never really had to kick a moving ball before and as as stupid as it sounds the, the concept of yeah a rolling ball or them having to kick when under pressure from attackers meant that their distribution was pretty woeful I mean I think Seaman probably was one of the better goalkeepers with his feet Norwich's Brian Gunn actually was was a very good uh, goalkeeper in that regard but yeah a lot of the times players who were playing in these teams were complaining basically just the goalkeepers weren't kicking the ball far enough you know that was a quite a basic consideration at this stage more memories Ryan Hamer uh, amongst many people mentioning Oldham Athletic who currently League Two's Oldham Athletic back in those days were in the Premier League and not just in the Premier League but heroes of one of the original great escapes Daniel yeah absolutely they they basically had to win all of their last three games have a chance of staying up and not just that but had to win them all in the space of I think six days uh, and, and the opponents they, as well Liverpool yeah, Villa they, and Southampton yeah Villa first so they beat Villa that's the game that confirmed Manchester United's title win they then beat Liverpool at home Liverpool it should be said were were kind of half in flip-flops and it was pretty clear that Oldham wanted it more and then the Final day, they needed to beat Southampton and hope that Palace lost to Arsenal, which, is, as Michael has explained, was no given at the time, uh, especially given Arsenal's dismal home record. They didn't win at home between, I think, November the 7th and late March. Richard. Here's Haller. It's opened up for Gunnar Haller. It's four. And now, surely... As long as Crystal Palace do not come back at Arsenal, Oldham are staying in the Premier League. And Oldham won 4-3 despite Matt Letizia scoring a hat-trick, which, as a Forest fan, I know is the first of two times that Letizia scored a hat-trick and lost in the Premier League. I can't imagine who the other one was against. No, you can't, you can't. Speaking of Forest, this was the season that they went down and also waved goodbye to Brian Clough. Yeah, very sad way for him to to finish it at fifty eight. You know, if you if you look at the footage of him, he, he looks much older than that, and and in a really bad way. He was in the grip of alcoholism at this time. Um, Forrest had sold Teddy Sheringham, who'd scored the first goal of Super Sunday as, as Forrest beat Liverpool one 0 in their first game of the season. Sheringham left a couple of weeks later, wasn't replaced until January and his replacement then was Robert Rosario. Uh, Des Walker had left in the summer. Stuart Pearce missed most of the season injured. So yeah, the troops who could have helped hide Clough's deficiencies at this point were were not available to him and it was a really, really sad way for him to um, to leave English football. Matt mentions about the fact that Clough looked older than he was and he's absolutely right. It should be said that you know, as sad as it is, Brian Clough was was barely a functioning person at that point. Never mind a functioning football manager. He was, um, it, you know, to to euphemistically put it, his his alcoholism had very much caught up with him and caught up with with Forrest. Um, he was out of control uh, in terms of his personality. Basically, he couldn't function. And relegation, in hindsight, although Forrest were a pretty attractive team, certainly in ninety one ninety two, relegation was a a formality, to be honest. All right, gents, thanks for that. Uh, We're going to finish off today's Totally Football show next with the second part of this extraordinarily well-balanced match between Tom Williams and James Horncastle in the Intertotally Cup. It's the Intertotally Cup part two, and it's a big warm welcome back to Tom Williams. Hello again, James. 
Hello again, Tom and James Horncastle. Been made to wait. Nervous times. Yeah. Well, the pressure's on you because you have a one-point lead. The pressure's on Tom because he's got a point to make up and a point to prove, no doubt, as we launch into the general knowledge questions. Quick reminder, the score is James 5, Tom 4, as we begin the general knowledge round. And, Tom, your first question, who has made the most Premier League appearances with 653? Gareth Barry. Is correct. Question two. Who is currently the most expensive defender in the world? Virgil van Dijk. No, it's Harry Maguire. Question three. What do the following teams have in common? Reims, Valencia and Atletico Madrid. They've all lost in European Cup finals. They've all lost in more than one European Cup final. That is correct. They've all been in more than one Champions League or European Cup final without ever winning it. Question four. Who were the last team to win the European Championships on home soil? We may have lost Tom at this point. Tom, are you still there? Still there. Hold on a little <laughs> thing. Just, just going back. After have to hurry you, Tom. Uh, France in 1984. It's correct. Finally, then, on the general knowledge round, who is the next team in this sequence? Sevilla, Manchester United, Atletico Madrid, and who? Did you, did you say, sorry? Uh, no, unless you thought you heard the right answer, in which case, <laughs> in which case yes. Okay. Um, Sevilla, Manchester United... Who was it came after United again, sorry? Uh, Atletico Madrid. Uh, I know that it's Europa League winners, but I'm trying to think who won it last season. I have to press you for an answer, Tom. Oh, um, Chelsea. Correct. Clamorosa Chivoli. So, uh, at the end of your general knowledge round, you have picked up four points out of five, giving you a grand total of... Eight points out of ten. James Horncastle, you need three to tie, and we'll go to a tiebreaker, or four to take it, or five if, you know, you're feeling flashed. Let's hear your general knowledge questions. Question one. Alan Shearer has scored the most Premier League goals overall, but who has scored the most Premier League goals for a single club? Sergio Aguero? I'm afraid not. It's Wayne Rooney. Question two. Who are the current champions of Portugal? The current champions of Portugal are... Benfica. Is correct. Question three. Real Madrid broke the world transfer record five times between 2000 and 2013. They broke the world transfer record for Luis Figo, Zinedine Zidane, Cristiano Ronaldo, Gareth Bale and one other player. Who? Real Madrid broke the world transfer record five times between 2000 and 2013 on the following players. Luis Figo, Zinedine Zidane, Cristiano Ronaldo, Gareth Bale and one other footballer. Who was it? I think it was just a few weeks before Ronaldo that Kaká went to Real Madrid. Correct. What do these, question four, what do these World Cup final venues have in common? The Estadio Centenario in Montevideo, Stadio Nazionale in Rome, Wembley in London, 
Olympia Stadion in Munich, Estadio Monumental in Buenos Aires, and the Stade de France in Paris. What do those World Cup final venues have in common? Mm. That they have all been places where Brazil have won the World Cup? No, it's where host countries won the World Cup. Ah. All settings for a host nation victory in the World Cup. Question five, then this, to pull level with Tom and move to a tiebreaker, mm. three teams have won the European Cup or Champions League three times in a row or more. Name those three teams. So three times in a row. So Real Madrid. Yes. Uh, Bayern. That's uh, correct. And Ajax. Correct. And we've gone to a tiebreaker. Oh, my word, Tom, how were you feeling as James was struggling there with that World Cup final question? Do you think maybe, maybe I've just snatched this? I did, I did. Heart was beating out of my chest. Crikey. But Horncastle came through at the death. It's not over yet, though. We go straight to a tiebreaker. You've barely got a chance to get your breath back, James, before I ask both of you the same question. And we're going to take the closest correct answer for a point which would see one of you through to the quarterfinals. Are you both ready? Yes. Yep. Okay. How about you, listener? All right, then. Uh, the highest ever attendance for a Premier League game was for Tottenham against Arsenal at Wembley in 2018. But how many people were there? Tom? 79,000. James Horncastle? 80,000. 80,000. The total attendance for Tottenham Arsenal at Wembley in 2018 was 83,222 people. James Horncastle, you're in the quarterfinals. How do you feel? See you! Tom Williams putting a metaphorical arm around your shoulder here and saying, that's got a sting. That was so close. Heartbreaking for you. Yeah, pretty gutting. I mean, I'm annoyed at myself for the two questions that I didn't get right in the main quiz. Um, I feel like James had an advantage going second in the tiebreak, but you know, I'm not going to uh, not going to hold that against him. There's no shame in in losing to a, a great champion like James Horncastle, uh, and I, I wish him all the best for the rest of the tournament. Wonderful sentiments, James. How 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 buzzed are you to be getting into the big time, the, the quarterfinals? Uh, humbled. Uh, first and foremost, um, I feel that uh, as a contest, it was equatable to, let's say, those great Wimbledon finals between uh, Nadal and, and Federer. Um, just huge respect on, on, on both sides of the net. Here. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's a contest that took place across the net as well, you know, mm. because we're all mm. remote. Looking forward to seeing who you've got in the draw for the quarterfinals and indeed catching up with both of you again soon. For now, many thanks for taking part in the Intertotally Cup. Bye. Wow, how about that? Our Titus tussle. Yeah, that was ever, ever so exciting. Um, Daniel, Matt and Michael, I know you were playing along. How did you guys do on the general knowledge? Very poorly. It's, yeah, it's unnerved me for my quiz. Right. Michael, you're very silent there. Yeah, I think I got two on both rounds, so not very confident on the back of that. Oh, my word. Matt, how are you feeling? I mean, that sounds good, but I got out of those ten questions, I got three right, so probably not much better. 
Okay. Well, we shall see. Also coming up in Thursday's Totally Football Show, we'll be continuing our Champions League chronicles. Uh, We'll be up to the 95-96 season. And there'll be another film in our Flicks and Kicks season. It's A Shot at Glory. If you've ever wondered what a film with Michael Keaton, Robert Duvall and, above all, Ali McCoy would sound like, wonder no more. But now... It is, of course, the recent signing by Kilnocki of Jackie McQuillan. Scotland's most notorious star soccer player. It's McQuillan! has been chosen to boost the town's struggling teens. This guy's going to give us the punch we need, Gordon, to make a run at the cup. Don't you want to win a cup? Teams win the cup, Peter. Not prima donnas reminiscing their past glories. A shot at glory. And yes, there is a bicycle kick in it. There's a, a link posted, actually, in my timeline if you want to watch that. Or you can quite simply go to YouTube and put in a shot at glory. It's the first thing that pops up. So watch that. Let us know your thoughts for Thursday's show. By the way... There's no Tuesday show this week. We're putting uh, that on hold for the moment, putting it in furlough, to use the current parlance. Uh, We'll be taking back Rafa, Jules, Alvaro and uh, Julian's uh, phones and laptops. The boys will be moving into Thursday's edition. And there is always a a golazzo to enjoy in the meantime. current one that's out is uh, Daniele De Rossi, if you fancy a bit of that. As for you, Matthew, Michael and Daniel, Matthew, you're waving. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to point out that we'll be recording the Totally Football League show on Wednesday as well, so you can still enjoy that for now. That is very good news indeed. What other big plans have you got for this week, Daniel? Uh, spreading my work as thinly as possible so that I work every day. Nice. I like it. And how about you, Michael? Uh, seemingly just doing lots of uh, Zoom-based pub quizzes. Brilliant. Training, of course, for your big clash uh, with Matthew. Any big pieces that you guys have got coming out that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, I've been looking uh, over the weekend at uh, free kicks in the Premier League and how often they end up in the back of the net. The short answer is not very often. Wow. Okay. Breaking stuff there from uh, from Michael. Look forward to, to reading all about that. Look forward to seeing you on Thursday, uh, Daniel, for that big clash with Rafa and Matt catching up with you again soon. Listener, thank you for being with us today. Enjoy yourself responsibly in the meantime and we'll catch up with you soon on the Totally Football Show. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too thetotallyfootballshow.com Muddy Knees Media.